Welcome to the San Jose Hockey Now podcast. This is Shang Peng, editor-in-chief of San Jose Hockey Now. You can also find my work at MEC Sharks and on Twitter, Shang underscore Peng. And I'm Keegan McNally. You can find my work at halfwallhockey.com, also at uh, sanjosehockeynow.com, where I write articles on Sharks prospects. Um, This week, Shang, what do we got for him? We have a great guest, Kevin Constantine, uh, head coach of the Sharks from uh, 1993 to 1995, I believe. And he was the head coach of the Sharks' surprise 1994 playoff team that upset the top seeded Detroit Red Wings in the first round. And he has some awesome, hilarious Link Gates, Jamie Baker, Igor Larionov, and our favorite, Yarmir Yager stories. Never a shark, but those stories are, are, are worth it. And anyway, for the last 40 years or so, Constantine has coached everywhere. He's coached somewhere every season. He's coached in Korea. He's coached in Hungary. And he's now the head coach of the WHL's Wenatchee Wild. So also, uh, before we get to the interview with Kevin, uh, we have a bunch of new Sharks hires, which continues a theme of, of hiring some uh, ancillary staff over the past year or so under Mike Greer. Um, but let's run through them, and then we'll talk about a couple of them. Uh, a couple of names that some uh, people might know. Uh, first one is uh, announced was Jack Anderson, who's going to be a, an assistant strength and conditioning coach. Uh, Jaron Burke, um, he's going to be an amateur scout for the Ontario region. No, no relation to Tim. No relation to Tim, which is a good tidbit. <laughs> um, Igor Aronko, if that's how you say his name, uh, an amateur scout for Russia, which is is interesting, and we'll talk about. Uh, Ryan Miller, um, famous uh, goaltender for Buffalo USA. Sabres. USA. USA all the way. Um, excellent goaltender for many, many years. Uh, he's going to be coming on as a goalie scout and goaltending development, which is something we'll talk about because that was a question we had last week, actually. Um, and then Thomas Vanek, his teammate mm-hmm. uh, for many years. Multiple 40-goal um, score, multiple-time 40-goal score. Yeah, he's going to be an amateur scout just for the Minnesota region. So really hyper-focused on some specific areas, uh, which is interesting for amateur scouting. Um, but let's uh, let's get into it a little bit. Um, let's start with um, uh, Ryan Miller and Thomas Vanek. Yep. And actually, before we get to uh, Miller and Vanek, I just wanted to jump in and give a shout out to uh, another addition, actually, to the Sharks uh, Hockey Ops. Uh, wasn't the, you know, uh, uh, we didn't get a press release for it. But um, um, but anyway, Dylan uh, Finnan, who has been part of Sharks PR for the last couple of years. Uh, if you've ever dealt with Dylan, great guy. And anyway, uh, congratulations to Dylan. He is now, uh, uh, he has been for the last couple of months, the Sharks Scouting Coordinator. And if you look on the Sharks front office directory online, you'll see Dylan's name right there under Hockey Ops, which uh, I think that's where he wants to go long term. So anyway, uh, big congratulations to Dylan. See you around. It's great dealing with you for the last couple of years. But uh, anyway, on to uh, Miller and uh, Vanek. Of course, Miller and Vanek were both teammates of Mike Greer in Buffalo. Um, also, too. Interesting to note that uh, Ryan Miller and Todd Marchant, who is the director of player development, that uh, they were both uh, in uh, in Anaheim at the same time. Uh, Miller as a player, as a goalie, ending his career, and Marchant uh, was the director of player development for the Ducks for a long time. So I'm sure that they know each other from that. Yeah, and last week we had a... Um... A question on like a state of the sharks goaltending under mm. Evgeny Nabokov, Sharks uh, director of goaltending. And um, Miller, uh, just to uh, uh, remind, mm. it's mentioned in the press release, he will be working under uh, Nabokov, um, uh, scouting uh, draft eligible goalies and also developing obviously the goalies in the sharks pipeline. 
Yeah, and that's kind of what we were mentioning was that the Sharks hadn't had a win in this department in a while, uh, in, in the goaltending department, especially from the amateur scouting side. Um, it's been a very long time. Well, they've got really, like 700 wins between the Bokoff and Miller. So. <laughs> a lot of wins, wins. Um, <laughs> and hopefully you're going to find a, a goaltender for the Sharks in the next. That was also a thing that we thought might happen this year was that the Sharks might draft a goaltender just because mm. we were a little thin and we had just lost Ben Goudreau from the system. Um, and then it didn't happen. So interesting that they picked up a, a, a specific goalie scout and, and goaltending development coach. I think that's really interesting. Um, apart from that, we also have Thomas Vanek, who's joining him as an amateur scout just for the Minnesota region. Um, but I think this kind of kicks off into like a theme of development in some, mm. in some manner. Um, before we get into that, I, I looked up a little bit about Igor Ironko because mm. it seemed like, not that the Sharks didn't scout Russia, because they did um, yeah. for the last draft. Yeah, they had Nikolai Ladikin, and he's been, a, a, from everything that I understand in here, he's been a very uh, uh, well, uh, highly thought of, uh, well-regarded uh, scout out there uh, for uh, mm -hmm. a long uh, for a while for the Sharks. And he was uh, based in Ukraine, right? Yeah, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's my understanding. And so I think, uh, um, you know, hiring Igor... Um, who we believe lives in Russia is, uh, you know, obviously with what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine um, could be a, a, a nice sort of, you know, having somebody, you know, on the ground in Russia at all times. Yeah. And he was the assistant general manager and, for two years. And then last year was the director of youth hockey for Avangard Omsk, um, which is a team based in Omsk, Russia. Um, again, if I'm mispronouncing everything, I apologize to our Russian listeners <laughs> that, you know, my Russian is not great, but, um, but he was the director of youth hockey. There's been a couple of notable draft picks from them over the past two years from the Avangard system, like Mikhail Guiyaev for Colorado, Club Trikazov, Timur Mukhanov, both for Carolina, um, in the past few years. So it's interesting that, um, the Sharks seems like they zeroed in on an area they might not have a scout in or wanted to add more to that area. Yeah, in a um, sensitive time. Right. In a sensitive time. And that was also something that Alan McCauley on the Alan McCauley episode that kind of got buried in the Eric Carlson trade news that he mentioned. <laughs> sorry, just, Alan. Yeah, sorry, Alan. Um, it was a great interview. Um, everybody should go listen to it. But he mentioned the importance of having like a, a scout on the ground in Russia to be able to see these players um, and how important it was for their scouting staff to, to get somebody like Mitchkov because they had seen him. Um, and not well, you know, everyone assumes that everybody has a Russian scout. That's not the case. And mm -hmm. not the Sharks have a Russian scout, Russian area scout. But um, as I'm not sure how often Ladikin was able to go in uh, to to Russia last year and, yeah. you know, see Michkov or any any of these other uh, you know prominent Russian prospects live. Yeah. And it, it could just be some speculation. And perhaps he he. Uh... Refused and it's like, no, I saw Mishkov 10 times a week. <laughs> like, I went in there all the time and it was fine. Um, but this is just an interesting ad, I, I think. But let's talk a little bit more about the the broader theme of development that the Sharks seem to be um, heading towards with all of these ancillary staff hires. Sure, sure. Uh, before we, we get to that, though, I want to mention to Igor Aronko, um, if you're on hockey Twitter like five years ago, seven years ago, like he was the go to guy for uh, information on uh, KHL or Russian NHLers. And so it's interesting that he also like actually like Dylan is somebody that is transitioning from sort of a, a different field. I know we have a lot of listeners who are uh, who are writers or who are amateur sort of video uh, video people and 
these two guys are examples of moving from, you know, being a, a journalist or in PR uh, and moving into hockey operations. So I think that's a, that's a really cool thing. But anyway, in terms of the theme of development, um, so I haven't uh, uh, done the full investigation in this, so don't like hold this as like a like a one hundred ten percent like factual, you know, accurate, you know, that sort of thing, right? But one of the things that struck me um, when the Sharks actually, you know, we talked about this uh, when Patrick Marlowe was added on as a development coach, and it seemed like wow, you know, the Sharks were really adding a lot of people kind of in the development area with that development title, and wanted to give you kind of a couple of examples of this that this is a clear thing that they're doing and that you know i assume the the, the budget is 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 being expanded uh, uh for this a lot over the years and um anyway right now the sharks have six people that are in that have the development title in hockey operations and i'm talking about player development specifically right and director of player development obviously todd marchant uh and Five different development coaches. Um, they have uh, Mike Ricci and Marlo uh, as development coaches for more of the AHL and younger Sharks, right? Sure. They have Tommy Wingos as sort of a development coach for um, the Sharks' uh, prospects, forward prospects. So that's, you know, Beastead or somebody more local like uh, uh, like Hardwell when he was uh, uh, in the OHL last year. And they yep. have Spiza, Lucas Spiza, uh, as a player development coach for the defensive prospects. So guys like Gannon LaRock. And now they added... Ryan Miller, of course. So now you have a goaltending development coach. Well, you know, not so many goaltenders out there. So he, I'm sure he'll work with Barracuda goalies, but he'll also work with Mason Volpit and guys like that, sure. I, I imagine. And so anyway, um, six guys. And so I suspected that that is a high number of, of people Seems with like that it. development title. And so I just took a quick look, cursory look um, at the rest of the Pacific Division and their directories. And one of them came up with zero. So I think there's that's why I caution that I need to fully explore it and make sure that that these you know figures are accurate. But um, still, though, I think the Sharks number of six stands out. OK, so I looked at the Ducks and they have two with that title. That, as far as I can tell uh, in their front office directory. Uh, and this is like quick again, quick research. So I might be missing guys. If you know, let sure, me know. Sure. You know, I'm going to correct myself. But uh, the Flames, I counted four. Mm-hmm. The Oilers accounted zero. And of course, that doesn't mean that the Oilers have zero investment in development or whatever, right? You know, they may have guys with different titles, guys that sure. might be uh, uh, listed as your assistant general manager or whatever, or as a scout, right? And they're doing different things, though. They're also, they yeah. also do like development. That's a big part of what they do, too. I mean, so it's Cupper, it's a uh, Cupper bust in Edmonton. They don't care about development. They're just <laughs> David, and that's it. Okay. Maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kings actually have six, too. Um, the Kraken uh, counted four and the Golden Knights accounted one. So again, so the Oilers and the Golden Knights uh, figures here, let's a little grain of salt. It doesn't mean that they sure, have sure. Uh, zero, little to zero development, but um, you know, these are just kind of job titles, right? But what is interesting, what I do know about the, the, the Sharks, and I can speak more certainly about the Sharks. So back in 2021, I just looked at their media directory or the media guide back in just to make sure. Uh, the Sharks had two people with uh, that development coach title or any the word development in in, uh, in hockey ops in, in their title. And that was Mike Ricci, who worked with, who's still with the Sharks and uh, works with, um, uh, with, 
Barracuda forwards and 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 uh, I assume back then maybe he traveled a little bit and the younger forwards maybe I'm not sure and then um, Brian Marchman uh, the late great uh, Brian Marchman uh, who yeah. worked with the defensive prospects right and I know I've spoken about this on the podcast a couple of times and also too if you listen to interviews we've done with uh, Doug Wilson Jr. Uh, his official title was director of scouting but he did a lot of the things that Todd Marchant does even though Doug did not have the 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 the, the uh, development title in in, in, mm-hmm. in his in his job in his in his in his just in his job title. So anyway, so that's uh uh you know when we talk about again going back to the Oilers and Golden Knights having zero or one person listed, you know that's an example of that. It's not like the Sharks didn't care about development for the last 10, 15, 20 years or whatever, right? Sure, um, sure. So anyway, though, um, there is still regardless though that like. Okay, instead of having uh, Doug Wilson Jr. doing kind of three, four jobs, two jobs, or whatever, <laughs> right? You know, you have the jobs are split now. The, the Sharks have a director of amateur scouting, um, uh, Chris Morehouse. They have uh, they they have a director of player development and Todd Marchand. You know, so you see kind of like these titles yep. are 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 split up here. Whereas you know the the old sharks, right? Uh, you know, there you can say there's pluses and minuses of of each sort of approach, but you know they they ran a little bit lean. So anyway, I just wanted to uh, to to illustrate that uh, again. This is just a cursory look, but you can mm-hmm. see kind of that the sharks are definitely investing more in development. Yeah, I think it's uh, probably a combination, like you said. Maybe they have different titles for those other players or other um, staff across the Pacific Division. The other mm-hmm. thing is, is the Sharks probably for a long time were just like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Where yeah, they had yeah. somebody taking care of the Barracuda or, uh, you know, um, or the Worcester Sharks. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't broke, they didn't find a reason to actually change it. And they they ran it, lean and it worked for a long time. And then it didn't. And yeah. <laughs> they realized that it needed a change, which I think is is a good thing that, that Greer has done in the past uh, year or so is, is recognize that. Uh, maybe the development hasn't been so great for the past couple of years. Mm. The Sharks in this new era really need a lot of players to hit. So I like the hires. I think that's really and interesting. Speaking of development or lack of, our next news uh, <laughs> item. The crux of development. The um, <laughs> the epitome of, of what in the world do we do with this kind of player? Ryan Merkley. Uh, Ryan Merkley, um, as you may or may not know, former first-round pick for the Sharks in 2018. 2018, yep. Yep, he was um, somewhere in the 20s, I think 21. 21, he was 21, yeah. Yeah, 21st overall. Um, He uh, had an up-and-down career, we'll call it that, with the Sharks and Barracuda. Um, We'll call it mostly down, but a little (laughs) bit. Yeah, you're being very kind, but (laughs) that's cool. (laughs) But anyway, he was eventually traded in the Martin Kaut trade, another Mm -hmm. uh, uh, interesting uh, player, but he... um, was traded mid-season right after Christmas or so. And uh, anyways, back to Ryan Merkley. This year, he wasn't signed uh, by Colorado. He wasn't offered. Yeah, this offseason. Yeah. Offer, um, this offseason. And then went unsigned the past two months or so. Uh, and then recently, today, just signed a one-year contract with the KHL, the Russian Hockey League's uh, Kunlin Red Star, uh, which is the KHL's team in Beijing, China, um, which... Is interesting. <laughs> I'm not I mean, clear how, how I gotta look it up. Uh, they've been uh, kind of they they don't play all their games in yep. in China. 
Uh, they they have home base, right. yeah, the home base. Uh, but anyway, though. Uh, but yeah, on, on this signing, well, first of all, no, uh, good luck to Ryan. I mean, I hope he really yeah. kills it in the KHL. Maybe that's uh, better for his skill set. And maybe he, he can come back, you know, like a couple of years ago, if, uh, uh, you know, guys who have uh, been uh, reading San Jose Hockey now for a long time, um, I think it was the uh, 2020 rookie faceoff or 2021. Anyway, though, uh, I was talking to to scouts there, and the comp that they had for for Ryan was uh, Eric Gustafson, and that wasn't uh, you know I don't know if that went over well with Sharks fans uh, uh, back then because they were you know for a long time Ryan Merkley was the Sharks' best prospect, uh, top prospect for 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 a long time for maybe lack of of, of better options, but he was the True. top prospect. And anyway, um, so uh, in regards to uh, Eric Gustafson comp, you know, Gustafson is a guy that famously can put up points, but, you know, can't do really a lot, a lot else. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, he was just signed, even though he's capable of putting up 40, 50 points, he was just signed to uh, almost a minimum contract that this, uh, this past the summer to the, with the Islanders, I think like 825,000. And so anyway, uh, not a player that is, you know, uh, necessarily you think of like, oh, yeah, that was a great first-round pick right there, right? But he is a useful NHL player who is really, really good at a couple of specific things, you know, sure. offense, running the power play, very important things too. And so that's why he can, even with his limitations as a defender, he can uh, he can still uh, uh, he, he can still uh, uh, get NHL work consistently. And so anyway, um, now though, right, with that, that comp uh, with Merkley, I'm sure that Sharks fans will be thrilled. <laughs> Yeah. Two years later, if he was as good as uh, Augustuson. And so hopefully uh, Ryan, uh, who's still very young, obviously, uh, um, can develop his game there and come back and maybe, uh, you know, hit uh, hit that mark. Yeah, I think Merkley, and I, I've written about Merkley on San Jose Hockey now. It's one of the mm -hmm. first, I think it was the first article I, I put out for that. Um, and actually, one of the first conversations that we had on the phone over a year ago where you asked me about Ryan Merkley, because we asked, so we just went through like the Sharks prospects and you asked me like, well, this was after Ryan Merkley famously, not famously, I guess uh, publicized, didn't make the, the Sharks roster after pretty much everybody, myself included, thought that he would make the Sharks team. Oh, year, sure, sure. The, the, not the, very the, the Europe trip. He didn't make the Europe trip. Yeah, he didn't make the Euro trip. He yeah. was and he actually played decent at the end of the previous year in the Sharks. I mean, like not amazing, but like I, I'm a shaking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought he would make the Sharks because nah. they just didn't really have a, a lot of options after they traded Brent Burns. They didn't have so a lot of options. Thought... That's, that part is true. So anyways, you asked me a question. You were like, what is the... Uh, this was probably in like November timeframe of last year. You were like, what, what does he think about Ryan Merkley? And I, as I was answering it, I heard the words come in my mouth. I was just like, I don't think he's long for the Sharks. And, and like, as I was saying it, I was like, oh man, I just realized that like two months before I was thinking he might make the Sharks. And then after watching him again in the, in the AHL, it just wasn't there. And the whole year last year, for, for Merkley, it just wasn't coming together. He just didn't play well offensively or defensively. Um, so, you know, we were hoping that with the trade, that maybe when he got to Colorado, that there would be a change in his game. Didn't really happen. Um, and then now he has to adjust his game to a whole new continent and see if um, he can put it all together there. I got to be honest. Uh, so when we mm -hmm. talked uh, last November, uh, if you had uh, been trying to pump up Ryan Merkley to me and tell me how you still going to work out, to look at the yeah. points, point projections, um, <laughs> I, I honestly wouldn't have hired you as a video analysis guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I figured so. Anybody who has yeah. watched his, his video seriously over the last couple of years, I've talked to nobody who thinks like, oh, this guy is an NHL. This guy is going to be a star. Um, yeah. You know, that sort of thing. I'm talking about NHL scouts, obviously yeah. guys who aren't in the NHL either. Um, but not one person has looked at his video, just looked at his video, his play, and thought, oh, this is a guy that is going to be a, you know, a top four NHL defenseman, mm-hmm. you know, great offensively uh, with some limitations defensively, but he's not even that at the NHL level at this point. Hopefully he comes back and does that. Hopefully yeah, he, true. you know, proves me wrong. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that, that was the, the Merkley test. So. <laughs> yeah, the Merkley test. No, it was, it's pretty apparent that his defense is just so porous and, the effort isn't there. And then the his offense, offense isn't good enough. Either. Isn't there either. Yeah. yeah at exactly. least at the highest level. So this will be interesting because it, hopefully, because Kunlin is famously a horrible KHL team. Like I think they're the bottom two of the KHL. It's them and Sochi um, are really, really bad. Put up points, baby. Maybe if you just give Merkley the puck and you just let him go and, and play mini Eric Carlson, maybe he's going to put up. 60 points next year yeah. you know you can <laughs> you have know, but... 100 points and a minus 26 yeah. like uh like yeah. 65 and before you kill yeah. me i know most of that minus 26 was from empty net goals i wrote that a lot so yeah i think i'm gonna put the over under on minus for merkley at 35 minus okay. 35 <laughs> i think i'm gonna put it at that because goonlin is so bad they don't merkley. play as many games though as the nhl that's though, true so. uh i'll put minus 30 then. we'll go 30 um but i'll go with that but anyways uh brush wish merkley the best and you know there maybe there is a chance that later on he comes back. I mean, Gustafson is, is later young. in his career. He's still so. young, yeah. So, um, yeah, that would be the comp though. Is just a power play specialist, not great defensively. No one is ever, yeah. No one expects him to ever be great defensively. He can be, you know, usable there, and he gets really good offensively. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm talking about NHL good offensively, not you know. Not cool. Good. Yeah. Not cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, there's a shot, you know, he does do things. And I will say that about his time with the sharks, like not to uh, totally uh, uh, beg on his time with the sharks. Mm-hmm. I, I, he was not good defensively that like that. that I watched yeah. that. There's, there's no way that, that, that he belonged in NHL. He might be an NHL for a bad team like the sharks, but he didn't, he didn't belong there. He's one of those guys like, you know, in the Doug Wilson era at the end there were just, giving guys, you know, playing time, you know, like, like candy, whether or not they really belong there or not, but Ryan did do, and we did see it. And it was, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a, a, you know, I'm not a hater. Like I saw it too, like every couple games or so he would do something that only he could do pretty much. And I'm talking about NHL wide, like maybe he could do it. Eric Carlson could do it. And maybe like a handful of other guys, some pass, you know, float some area pass that, yeah. Like, so that's a, that's a real ability he has. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, hopefully he can do that more, be a little better defensively, uh, and you know, get a, get his way back here. Yep, and um, I think it's time to move on. Uh, yep. <laughs> it's just the theme of this summer is is moving on, and and Merkley was one of the last holdouts of of hope. There was uh, for for turning the franchise around quickly. You know, if Merkley somehow hit and became our next Derek Carlson, it's all going to be great, going to be gravy, and never happened. So. Anyways, let's move on. We have a lot of new players um, mm-hmm. that were added to the Sharks this year, uh, or this offseason, actually, just a couple of weeks, um, that I think we, we should talk a little bit about. We, we did a little bit of a touch on it when we did the Eric Carlson trade, but, but let's go and do it. Let's, let's talk about uh, the three players that came back with Eric, from Eric Carlson trade uh, in Grandland, Hoffman, and Jan Ruta. Yeah, and I, I wanted to uh, add some insight that I, I got from an angel scout recently. And so just something that, you know, uh, give you a sense of uh, what the league, uh, it's one man's opinion, but what the league, 
what the industry consensus on these guys uh, uh, is. And uh, let's start really quickly with uh, Mikhail Granlin. And obviously, uh, Granlin uh, struggled last year in Pittsburgh. But before that, though, he was really good for a number of years in Nashville and Minnesota. And uh, in terms of just recent really good tape in 2021-22, I just wrote about this. He was uh, Predators' uh, most used forward, more than, you know, Philip Forsberg and Johansson and uh, Duchesne, right? Um, and that was a playoff Predators team, too. That, that was not a, a average or bad Predators team. And so mm -hmm. for Granlin to, to lead all forwards in ice time, uh, you know, he was a regular both on the power play and penalty kill. So anyway, uh, what this scout tells me of Granlin last year is that he still thinks that Granlin is a good player and obviously overpaid right now at 5 million AAV. But he doesn't think that Granlin's game actually really fell that much. I mean, obviously he wasn't good in Pittsburgh, but, you know, that sure. could be an adjustment thing. And the scout reminded me, and Granlin has mentioned it too, that um, – he, Granlin had a difficult time adjusting when he got traded with Minnesota Nashville at the yep. at, also at the deadline, and similar kind of story unfolded Nashville to Pittsburgh, and so maybe he's just one of those guys that maybe that that just is like a tough move for him. I don't know. You know, you know, uh, uh, we don't know for 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 sure on that. And now he has a different move now, but he has a little more time to to prepare. But though uh, this this scout really does like Randlin, um, uh, values the playmaking and versatility, sure. and you know sees him as a complimentary guy. And so you know needs to play with the best players. And so I had thought that maybe Randlin could settle in as being a three C. Maybe that's not the the best idea for him because. He may not be playing with the Sharks' best wingers at, at, at third line center. So maybe play him with, uh, you know, uh, play him at wing. You know, Granlin can play wing too. But anyway, so I, I thought that that was good insight on Granlin. Um, you know, he is signed for two more years, but he's not, you know, at least based on his on-ice ability, you know, he's not exactly a pure, you know, salary dump. It sounds like he can be really good. And if he's at close to as good as he was just two years ago, you know, two years ago, mm -hmm. again, led the Preds uh, forwards in ice time. And he had 53 assists, career high 53 assists, 64 points. The Sharks will take that. Yeah. And it, like you said, the, the trade and, and from Minnesota to Nashville, then from Nashville to Pittsburgh, both times when he was traded, he had five points after the trade and looked bad. Um, so when he came back, he had five points in 16 games and he went to Pittsburgh at five points in 20 games. Um, but then he rebounded over finding his groove with Nashville up to 64 points in a year, two years ago. So mm -hmm. you know, I think it's a guy with skill. Um, it's a guy that's versatile. Um, it can play center, can play wing and somebody that, you know, I, the Sharks don't have a lot of these kind of guys that can play both positions. They got a lot of wingers and they have a few centers. And also um, not I, a lot of guys who are really good two way, you know, Granlin, uh, I, you know, I don't care what, what the charts I saw some, uh, anyway, uh, Granlin is a good two way player. He wouldn't be used as he's been over the last couple of years. Um, and so along with Couture hurdle, you know, those, those are some good, you know, guys who are, you know, very good offensively, very good defensively. Yeah. Three C Granlin isn't that bad, I think. And then Sturm is your four C that's like, Pretty good center group, yeah. I think. Um, if yeah. everything we'll else, obviously, yeah. Granlin's got to like, um, you know, pick his game back up and find his his new home. But you know, it's possible that it's a, a deeper forward group than the Sharks have had for the past few years because of the additions of Granlin and our next guy, Mike Hoffman. 
Right. And uh, Mike Hoffman, uh, this scout was not as in love with uh, or didn't like Hoffman as much, probably because Hoffman is, you know, he does uh, a couple things really well. He can shoot, you know, on a power play. He's he's useful. Right. But obviously, the last couple of years for Hoffman, uh, he's fallen off quite a bit Uh, from 2014 to 2021. uh, Hoffman was scoring at, I believe, a 30 goal pace uh, over those like seven years or so. 82 game, 30 goal pace. So he was a very, very good goal scorer um, in his day. But the last couple of years, he's also 33. Um, he has only scored uh, 29 goals. And obviously, uh, 29 goals over the last two years. And obviously, 29 goals for, let's say, Nico Sturm scores 29 goals over two years. That's great because yeah. Nico Sturm adds so many other things besides some goal scoring, right? But a guy like Hoffman that doesn't have much more than a goal scoring, if he's not scoring goals, he's not really helping you much. And so anyway, uh, this scout uh, thinks that eh, – you know, more of a perimeter guy. That's 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 what he thinks of, of Hoffman. And so um, unless Hoffman can pick up the goal scoring again, um, you know, he may not end up being uh, quite as uh, valuable as I, I expect Granlin to be pretty valuable. Hoffman, we'll see. He, he needs to he needs to get back to a 25 goals uh, scoring pace or so. Yeah, it, it could be the situation where Granlin rebuilds his value enough that next year, because Granlin's here next year, that he does mm-hmm. actually have some value to trade a deadline kind of thing. Whereas Hoffman, you know, he might get a, a flyer from a team. Yeah, one year. He's got one year left. Yeah, yeah, he's got one year left. So maybe at the trade deadline, somebody needs a power play specialist or a shooter. Uh, it's possible. But he better um, be scoring, though. If he's scoring he at the 15 goal clip, yeah. like, I don't I don't think he's going to be very tradable. So he's got to be, true. you know, the, the Sharks have to pump up his value. He's uh, he's PP1 yeah. for sure. So. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of like our version of Kevin LeBanc, but just a little bit. But obviously better and a better shooter. But, like, soft, skilled, perimeter player who does mostly power play but not a lot else. That's, that sounds like LeBanc just better or was better in his career than LeBanc mm-hmm. has been. But, um. You know, and obviously Hoffman's 33 now, I think. So, yeah, other time will catch up to him as well. So, I don't know. And it might it have seems, already. We'll see. It might have already. Yeah. It seemed kind of like he was the, the throw in from the whole trade. Oh, for sure. Um, they just needed to clear cap. Yeah. So, yeah, they cleared no, cap. And then they ended no up trading Jeff Petrie um, or, or Petrie afterwards, which is interesting sure, too. Because yeah. uh, if you think about it, like, could the Sharks have just taken Petrie and left Hoffman in Montreal and then eventually traded Petrie anyway? But, Seems like he was like, absolutely not. I don't want to go to San Jose. Just in case they, the Sharks couldn't flip him, maybe. Exactly. So. In case they yeah. couldn't flip him. Yeah, so. And they would have had to re- retain for two more years. And mm-hmm. yeah. So interesting things that happened with that. Um, yeah. Our last player um, uh, that came in that trade basically was Jan Ruta or Ruta. Um, still need to get confirmation on pronunciation <laughs> for that. But um, what, what's, um, what do scouts have to say about him? Uh, Rutta is actually very, very much liked by the scouting community. Um, he is a, you know, uh, hard to play against a uh, right-handed defenseman, right? And obviously uh, has won two Stanley Cups and is mm-hmm. sort of a model, you know, he's a bond pairing defenseman. So let's not get ahead of ourselves, but he's a sure. model bond pairing defenseman. And, you know, that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it isn't though. You know, every guy on a team on a, on a good team has a role. And so Jan Rutta, you know, shouldn't be your top pairing. He might be a top pairing defenseman for the sharks and he probably <laughs> shouldn't be. But uh, when he plays his 15 minutes a night, you know, to 17 minutes a night for Tampa Bay, uh, when he was in Tampa Bay, he excelled in those and they won sure. a Stanley cup. And yeah. so I don't get any sense that, that Rutta 
was either he had some injuries with Pittsburgh, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't poor for them. Uh, sure. He just seen you know, a little bit overpriced. Two point seven five million for the next two years is a bit high for uh, a bottom pairing guy, even if it's a really good bottom pairing guy. Um, but nonetheless, though, the guy can still play, and so he's a guy that's uh, going to help out the, the the Sharks. And I could see him, you know, taking on a larger role, kind of like Matt Benning did last uh, last mm-hmm. year, and you know, being competent at it. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I I look forward to seeing what he what he adds. Yeah, he's like a guy that um, if he was in your third pairing as a Stanley Cup contender, you would be doing well. I think he would be yep. fine there if you can afford him. Um, he's not that expensive. He's in the two million range in his salary. Yeah, two point seven five. Yeah, two point seven five. Uh, but you know, if a team can afford him in your third pairing, then it's great. If he's your second pairing or your first pairing, then he might not be a Stanley Cup contending team, but he still could, you know, have value at a trade deadline if the Sharks want to go that route. If they also give him a lot of minutes and his point production goes up too, that always helps. <laughs> you know, he did score, I think, 20 points uh, in his rookie year in like 57 games for the Blackhawks. And he did get some power play time back then because that was his uh, his first year coming from the Czech League. And he was yep. an offensive defenseman in the Czech League. And yeah. so if you can replicate that point production uh, 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 with the Sharks, uh, he's going to be a bit more movable because someone would be like, oh, there's a little bit of offense there that uh, we didn't know was there. So, And like yeah. he joked, uh, he's, he seems like he's a he's a guy that's going to be a great quote. He joked that, yeah, um, I'm going to uh, try out a couple of clappers and see if I still got it. <laughs> <He's> got <laughs> when it. I asked he's him about it. maybe playing on the power play. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, I can't. Yeah, I'm excited to see. I, you know, it, these are interesting pieces, but it's a, um, we're going to have to find bright spots for the Sharks this season. So. Yeah, we're, we're going to need to. So, um, yeah. trying, trying our best here, guys. So, yep. So, anyways, I, I think, um, I think that's all of the news for this week for the Sharks. Um, Merkley got signed in the KHL. We had a lot of, uh, ancillary staff hires, which is awesome. Development coaches, which is awesome. Um, and um, I hope you guys enjoy. This is an awesome interview um, with Kevin Constantine. It's a, it's a little long, but it's it's a very funny thing if you listen to it all the way through. He's got some great stories mm-hmm. uh, to tell. So, Bye, guys. See you guys. See you next week. You might know Kevin Constantine as the head coach of the San Jose Sharks surprise 1994 playoff run. Uh, they upset the top-seeded Detroit Red Wings in the first round. You might also remember that Constantine coach, the Yaramir Yager, Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Martin Brodeur, New Jersey Devils. But you might not know that Constantine has kept coaching after the NHL in places like Korea, France, Poland, Hungary, and Switzerland. For the last, I believe, 37 years, Constantine has coached somewhere every season, and he's now the coach of the WHL's Wenatchee Wild. Welcome, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Is it a 37 straight years we're talking here? That's what I counted on uh, uh, prospects, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a big enough number that it's, it's hard to remember. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you count a couple of years where I was just a volunteer coach kind of earning my stripes in the business, it's, it's right around, you know, 40 years. Mm, okay. 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 Well, uh, let's uh, jump this up into it here. And um in 1990, 91, um, before uh, 1991, the San Jose Sharks, uh, you actually were coaching in uh, Kalamazoo and places like that. You're assistant coach. Uh, also, you're a head coach in USHL. But in 1991, you were actually offered uh, the assistant coach job for the expansion uh, San Jose Sharks. Why did you take that? Because instead, you opted to go to Kansas City to be the head coach of the IHL team. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd been an assistant <clears throat> in Kalamazoo in the IHL, which at that time was the Minnesota North Stars farm team. And then, of course, mm. for those hockey historians, uh, the North Stars actually split into the Dallas Stars and the San Jose Sharks. And, and that was when I was offered a, a chance to go be an assistant in the NHL or uh, become the San Jose Sharks farm team head coach in uh, Kansas City in the IHL. And I just had been an assistant for three years, and my head was buzzing with ideas, uh, things I wanted to try, ideas I thought might work. And, and the only way that I could kind of do that was to go back to being a head coach and and uh, try some of those things. And that, that, that was real uh, intriguing, appealing to me. Um, so that's why the decision was made. What were some of those ideas? Oh, you know, uh, I, I think when I started coaching uh, and, and I wanted to try to, you know, improve myself, educate myself, furthering education, uh, I didn't play uh, in the NHL, and I didn't really have a, a, a network of, of coaches in, in the NHL. So a lot of what I learned about coaching came from reading books, and a lot of it came from, um, you know, from, from, from football, basketball, you know, Bill Walsh with the with – the, uh, you know, the 49ers back in the day, uh, Phil Jackson coaching the Bulls, uh, as far back as, you know, reading a book on a Bo Schembechler at, at University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's just coaching philosophies that are universal to every sport. Uh, John Wooden and his, and his uh, pyramid, uh, you know, you, you see it on Ted Lasso. If you're following Ted Lasso right now, that that John Wood pyramid am. Is, is on the background of the of the coach's board. And so, you know, I developed my own hockey, John Wooden's version for hockey, uh, and I, I've used it um, for years. Uh, and so, all of those ideas, I wanted to try to implement them, see if they applied to hockey. Uh, and, and so th those were some of the things that I wanted to do. Hmm. Well, I'd ask you, what's the difference between your pyramid of success versus John Wooden's? Well, I'll tell you how, how, how it kind of got converted. Um, when I left the Sharks, my next head coaching job was the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mm -hmm. And I tried a couple unique things there. Uh, Craig Patrick was the GM. And when he hired me, I said, I, I want an assistant coach in charge of all of the areas of our game, like kind of like football. I want a, a penalty kill coach. I want a power play coach. I want a defensive coordinator who watches how we play defense. I want an offensive coordinator who watches how we play offense and the idea of having four assistants at the nhl in fact a lot of the things i've done were un unheard of kind of when i did them uh yeah, back then there's only really, like one or two assistants right uh, yeah uh there was one maybe two i wanted four <laughs> and i remember craig saying to me uh 
he said, well, you can have as many as you want, but the budget for the assistant coaches is going to remain unchanged. So in other words, if I could find guys to come in at the right price and the budget didn't change, he didn't care how many guys I had. So, so we tried that. We, we had, we had four assistant coaches, probably first time ever in the NHL. And when I got those coaches together and they were all, you know, respected ex-players or respected coaches, I, you know, I asked them, what do you, what do you want to do? And we just went up to a whiteboard and I said, what do you, what do you like about a team? What makes a good team? And we just started putting every idea down. You know, if someone said discipline or someone said uh, unity or someone said a skill or someone said offense or someone said a good power play, uh, we wrote it all down. And when we were done writing it all down, if you looked at the whiteboard, it was full. But it was it, it seemed like random ideas just kind of, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard, just all kinds of things all over the board. It, it looked great, but it looked, it was messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then my next question to the coaches was, was, well, how do we make that simple? So we had all these ideas from all the assistant coaches on the whiteboard, but it was, you know, like darts hitting a, a dartboard. It was just kind of thrown up there. And so it, it was great. It was a lot of ideas, but it was kind of messy too. So, you know, my next question to the coaches was how do we present this to the players in a way that is simple, makes sense, easy to apply. And that's where the idea of the John Wooden pyramid came in. Uh, and, and we established kind of a way of looking at hockey in, in a pyramid form that, mm-hmm. you know, has, has been used uh, religiously by myself with all the teams I've coached, but I think also, you know, borrowed and used by, you know, kind of my coaching tree. And by that, I mean all the guys that have been assistants for me that have gone on now, you know, to do some pretty good things. There's, there's two of my assistants that now are, you know, NHL assistants, uh, Jay Verity in, in Detroit and, mm-hmm. and Mitch Love in, in Washington. So, so these ideas have, have, uh, have become something that's made teaching the game a, a, a lot easier, uh, kind of a basketball concept, you know, a, a kind of adapted and applied to hockey. And, uh, you know, before you got to uh, San Jose, you're, of course, with the Kansas City Blades, and you had a tremendous success there, winning the Turner Cup in 1992. And eventually, in 1993-94, you took over the San Jose Sharks. Yeah. Yeah, it was was fun. Um, You know, I I had won a championship in junior – and then uh, we took over the Blades, and they were in last place the year before I got there, and, and we won our first 10 games. And, um, and then that team went on and won a, won a championship also that year. So, uh, so my first kind of two head coaching jobs, I had won championships both years. So, <laughs> Good start. Uh, but my, my next year in Kansas City, we – we weren't quite as good as the first year, and we had a stretch where we lost like six or seven in a row. And, and so it was, you know, it was kind of my first hiccup coaching where I'm like, 
wow, I, you know, everything we had done had kind of turned into a championship. So it was kind of, kind of magical. And then all of a sudden you're losing and you're like, Oh, well, I, I guess I don't know everything about coaching right now. And, and when I look back that, that experience was really, really valuable hmm. learning how to get out from under that winning streak, because despite the fact the sharks, my first year there had, you know, end of season success, beating Detroit in the playoffs. You know, we started that year 08 and one. Right. Uh, we only we only ended up with a tie out of our first nine games. And had I not gone through that that experience the year before in the minors, it, it, it might have been impossible to kind of dig ourselves out from that hole. But but the experience the year before gave me you know some ideas and some tools that that were helpful the next year when our season started in San Jose pretty slow. And before we get to your time in San Jose, I had to ask you, uh, your time in Kalamazoo, one of the players that played for you was Link Gates, uh, the infamous Link Gates. What was it like coaching him or, you know, and just any other, any other like sharks before the sharks in Kalamazoo when it was still a Minnesota uh, farm team? You know, there's, there's so many stories. Uh, one of the, and, and I don't remember a lot of them. My wife says, you know, at 64 that I, I got, you know, early onset dementia, which I, I hope is just the wife giving her husband crap and not, not real. It, it, it might be. So I forget so many of the stories and, and sometimes you feel bad because you, you're, you know, you've coached so many players and you, you forget a player here or there, but, mm-hmm. but one that, one that would be impossible to forget is, is the link. Um, you know, and, and the stories are, are endless, but, but so many of them are, are, are rated that you don't, it's okay. Really we can, to, you can, you can tell us, you can tell us it's fine. You, you know, you don't, you don't even really want to tell them. You got to get the children out of the room before you start telling the stories. Um, I'm covering my ears. And, and, and I think I had, I, I think I had probably more experience with those stories than, than any other person. I mean, you know, there's probably, there's probably 20 unbelievable stories about Link. And so you would think that involves 20 different people, but I think I'm in the middle of about five or six <laughs> of those 20 stories. So I think I lead, lead the world in, in being related to, to Link's stories, you know? So it was, uh, you know, I mean, where, which story do I tell? Uh, you know, I was in Kalamazoo we had three goaltenders for a, for a stretch of our season. Uh, the, the third guy was Johnny Blue, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a California kid, I believe. Who, sure, who yeah, played yeah. For the univer- played for the University of Minnesota and played a little bit of pro. Uh, being the third goalie and not getting a lot of game time, he always wanted to go out early and get extra practice time before practice even started. Um. And so I would often go out and, you know, whatever players came on the ice first, I'd grab the player and we, you know, we'd get 10 or 15 minutes of drills in for Johnny just because he didn't get a lot of action in games. And this particular practice link came out early for practice. And we had already set up a pile of pucks at the top of one of the circles in the end zone, another pile in the middle, another pile on the other top of the circle. And those piles were all set up so when players came on, we could we could take some shots on, mm. on the goaltender. 
Link came on the ice and he went over to the first pile of pucks and he put a stick in the middle of them. And, you know, with a swoop of his stick, he spread those pucks all, all over the rink. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we said, Link, leave the pucks. We're going to use them for, for drills for the goalie. Just leave the pucks alone. And so he went over to the second pile of pucks and he put his stick in front of the pucks and he just shot them all over the ice with one, another <laughs> swoop of his stick. So now Johnny, who has spent time organizing all those pucks, is, is really upset. And he's, you know, now he's kind of yelling at Link a little bit. Um, and, you know, telling him, don't. Now these are our pucks, leave them alone. And, and now there's anger. Um, and Link just went over to the third pile of pucks and spread those all over the ice. So, so Johnny who's, you know, I, I don't know, he's my size. He's 5'10", 180 pound guy. And Link is, you know, a giant. Mm -hmm. So Johnny Blue, a goaltender with no fighting experience, drops his gloves, the goalie glove, the trapper, <laughs> and squares off to fight Link. And Link just looks at him like, you know, are you kidding me? And so Link picked up Johnny Blue's blocker, put it on his hand, grabbed Johnny with his left free hand, and kind of beat the crap out of him with Johnny's own blocker, <laughs> punching him in the head with the blocker. Um, yeah, so... They were on know, the he, same... Yeah, everybody listening, they were on the same team. So this is a practice. They're on the same team. They're on, Yeah. I, I, you know, they, and so this is, uh, you know, you know, my... Yeah, this is my... This is... And, and I got a hundred of them. Uh, you know, we could go link gates for the whole pot podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Change the name. I guess. Uh, I guess going back to to um, the San Jose Sharks, um, can you um, talk a little bit about your your approach to that that head coaching job, where basically the Sharks franchise had only won twenty eight games in its previous two seasons. It was a really really new franchise. Um, players from that team said you added discipline to that team. What, what do you think about that? How did you do that? Or what was your approach? Do you think? Well, you know, when I, when I came there, uh, there was quite a few players that had been with the team the first couple of years. And, and, you know, it, it had been loss, loss, loss. Uh, so it, it hadn't been good. There hadn't been much winning. And in my opening speech, you know, I told them, uh, you know, we're not here just so we can say, hey, we had a few years in the NHL. You know, we're here to win a Stanley Cup. Um, and, you know, some of the guys in the room told me after we beat Detroit in the playoffs, when they looked back on the season, they, they said to me, hey, when you said in the room, we were all laughing in the back of the room. Um, because, the, you know, the team was not a joke, but they, they didn't win much, right? The first two mm -hmm. years. So, so you know, I, I think one thing that you have uh, to have success at anything in life, anything, you got to say it's possible. Um, you got to believe it's possible. You got to speak like it's possible. You got to speak the way people that would win would speak. Um, and so, I, I hope I was part of planting a seed with the organization 
that, you know, if you do certain things right, good things follow. And, um, you know, certainly the discipline, uh, the ability, I mean, you can't win without discipline and you can't really win without good defense either. Now, you know, it it, it shouldn't be the only thing you're trying to do in hockey uh, because you need offense too. But even this year, if you go back and watch Vegas beat Florida in the playoffs, and you go back to some really important shot blocking that happened when Florida had opportunities, uh, it, it probably goes a bit unnoticed by some fans who, you know, are, are more enthralled with great moves and the great plays and the great shots and the fights, and they might miss the importance of a congestion of a of the slot in your own end of the ice where you, you don't give the offensive team any room to make plays. But um, so, so those are some of the things I think, you know, we helped establish the goals against went down by over a hundred. So we, mm. we learned how to work. We learned how to play defense. We learned how to believe we, you know, so um, yeah. So I, I think so, those were some of the key fundamental things that were put in place in year three of the organization. How do you get the guys to play defense? You know, playing time, was was that the carrot? Or what other ways did you kind of use to get guys that maybe uh, struggled defensively the year before? You know, the 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 previous year Sharks team only won 11 games. Uh, so how did you get, get those guys to kind of turn that part around? Well, a couple, a couple things. One is, is, is the, the first two years lack of success uh, was the motivation for them to listen to me mm. um, because, you know, everybody wants to be successful. Um, and so when they lack success the first two years, I think they were willing to listen to a different way of doing things. And so that, that was helpful. I came in at the right moment where, where players were willing to listen. But, you know, and it was probably in, in three years ago in your article that you're, you, 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 we've talked about that you put out. But, you know, there was a group there that wouldn't play defense even when I got there. And it was, it was uh, you know, and, and so Larianoff, Makarov, uh, they came in and they listened to almost nothing that I was coaching. <laughs> Um, and the reason they listened to nothing is, is they had already been part of, you know, the KLM line or mm. Russian hockey or the sure. most successful team in the world. So why would the most successful team in the world want to listen to a rookie coach who was only one year older and had never played in the NHL? <laughs> they, did, they, they had no interest in listening to me. They didn't believe in what I was saying. Um, and so you know, when, when we went 08-1, what I had learned from the year before is, is you know, don't give up on your basics. Don't give up on your fundamentals. But when things aren't working, you, you've got to be willing to, to try something different and experiment a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so from that lesson I had learned the year before when I coached the Kansas City Blades, you know, and partly out of frustration, I took all the players that wouldn't listen to me of them, Sanders, Hose Lynch, uh, Jeff Norton, Johan Garpenloff, uh, <laughs> Igor Larionov, Sergey Makarov, and I just I, I I said, listen to to Wayne Thomas, who was one of my assistant coaches. I said, you're now the head coach of that group of five, 
I said, <laughs> I, they don't want to do it my way. They want to do it their way. So let's just let them do it their way. And, and my only thing is they can't go minus. They can have whatever style, but if they're going minus during the game, well, then we, then I, then I'm coming in and I'm going to make some comments to them. Um, <laughs> and in doing that, that group became, I think maybe one of the best or the best group of five players on the ice as a group in the whole league. And by the time we hit Detroit in the playoffs, they, they look like, you know, the, the Russian group of five, you know, uh, that included Katisov and Konstantinov sure. on defense with the KLM line. Yeah, Fedorov, and, yeah. And, yeah, so, I mean, so sometimes coaching is, is not everything you know. Sometimes coaching is an admission you don't know, and you got to get out of the way of, of, of some some players. You just got to get out of their way and let them do their thing. So, so it, it you know, it was, it was success through failure in terms of uh, that group being able to be as good as they were. That's such a fascinating decision to me. It's just not something you hear about in coaching today or even coaching in the past where um, you have uh, this these, a group of very talented guys, but who aren't really quite with the program. You actually, instead of trying to, you know, put uh, circle pegs into, into a square hole or whatever, you kind of let them do their own thing. I mean, that is... I mean, where did you even think that to even to even try something like that? Because I hadn't, I haven't seen anything like that before. Well, you know, uh, I I forget the saying, but uh, you know, success has many fathers. In other words, if you have success, everybody takes ownership of it, and failure is an orphan. And other, you know, nobody wants to, <laughs> to talk about their about their failures. Uh, it wasn't done through. It wasn't done through uh, any form of brilliance at all. It was done through trial and error and failure. It was mm. this isn't working. Let's do something different. Mm. Um, th- th- they're not listening, but they've had success. Let's let them try to have success the way they grew up having success. Actually, if you know, if you if you listen to Mike Sullivan's comments just recently in acquiring. Uh, Carlson from the from the from the Sharks, he kind of says the same thing. You know, he, mm. he 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 said two things in a in a in a fairly long question and answer session about the trade. He said two things that stuck out to me. He said many things. One, he says, I don't want to take away Carlson's instincts. I, I yeah. want him to to be able to play the game the way he feels the game. Um, but then he also said, you know, we demand accountability defensively from all of our players. So there's certain basics of playing the game defensively that everybody has to uphold. And so there's the magic. The magic is in trying to give enough liberty in certain parts of the game so that a player can take everything he's learned and all his instincts playing and still utilize those. But at the same time, collectively, everybody's on the same page, especially a little bit even more on the defensive side of it, mm-hmm. so that we also, we also have a team game because, because there, you have to have both. You have to have the power of team, uh, your systems and your structure, but you need individual difference makers that you know are the guys when the score's tied and the systems are even that just 
single-handedly and individually with their skill, McKinnon, McDavid, Crosby, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, can, can go do things. And so you don't want to take away those instincts from the individual players either. Sure, sure. And how did they play differently than the rest of your team? You know, Larianoff, Makarov, uh, Garpenloff, Norton, and Ozilinch. Just what was, yeah, what, just how was your style different? Well, it's it summed up in Larianoff's comments to me when I was trying to teach the way I wanted the team to play, of which, you know, defense wasn't being weighted more than offense, but we certainly wanted to play. 50% of the game, which is the amount of time you don't have the puck. You want that 50% to be done right. That's the defensive side of the game. So we're only talking about half of the game, but nonetheless, a very important half. So when I would, when I would instruct the team on what to do in those situations and Igor didn't want to do those things, you know, he came to me on the, on the side in my office or in the hallway or, you know, after practice on the sideboards, and we talked, and he said, he said uh, and this was his broken English, best defense is offense yours. That was his favorite <laughs> saying to me. Uh, hey, Kevin, best defense is offense yours. Uh, and the, the translation into real English is, you know, if, if, you, if you have the puck and you're on offense, you don't need to play defense. Mm-hmm. And so their idea was, please give us the puck we're going to keep it so long and so much that it'll be very seldom that we ever actually have to play defense. Mm. So please let us, let us do what we want with the puck. Let us control it more. Let us, let us regroup instead of, uh, you know, dumping a puck in. Sure. Uh, Let us go back and start over the way the Russians did on the big ice sheet for years and years. So that, that was, that was something that, you know, we had to kind of, give them a little more liberty when we wanted the other three lines on the team to do it based on their skill set and our strategy. We had to, we had to open the door that we were going to do many things as a team, but we were going to leave room for some, some individuality within that team plan. Hmm. And you know, a danger of something like this, it would seem to me is that, other guys on the team might be like, wait, how come they get to do this and we have to do that? So, you know, was there any uh, resentment that you had to navigate from the other Sharks that the Larianoff line sort of had uh, their own rules? Yeah, good, good, good question. Um, and I think I would be, I think I'd be making up the answer. Um, in other words, you know, there, there could have been some, some grumbling, you know, going on behind the scenes that I might have even been somewhat unaware of because we allowed them to, to have kind of a different plan. But this, this is where, uh, you know, this is where the leadership group in your locker room is really, really, really critical. Um, your, your leadership group, you know, has to be able to kind of lead by doing their job. That's kind of priority number one. You can't lead unless you're out there doing your job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and leadership factor number two is, is you have to care about the results of the team more than you care about the individual performance of, of yourself. And, and we did have some pretty good, you know, some, some, some pretty good leaders with, you know, Bob Erie, uh, Jeff Rogers. Um, so, I think we had enough leadership in the room that 
you know, even even Jamie Baker um, was was a uh, you know uh, uh, the funny leader um, on our team, uh, and so I think we had enough character and leadership on the team, um, and I think the motivation was, man, we we sucked for for two years. <laughs> Let's just do what we got to do to to be respectable in this league. And it turned into, you know, even a little more than respect. It turned into, you know, a playoff upset in a, in a second round with Toronto that went to the seventh round. So mm-hmm. it turned into even probably more than they even expected. Um, can you describe a little bit of, of the local excitement surrounding that playoff run? Uh, the city of San Jose actually threw a parade for that team um, after a loss in the second round, which is pretty uh, unique, I'd say. I mean, it was obviously a huge step forward for the franchise. Yeah, I was I was unhappy about the parade. Mm. Um, I, happy and unhappy. Uh, yeah. Happy because something nice happened for San Jose. Happy because people wanted to kind of celebrate a huge, you know, top ten ever upset in the league. Uh, happy for the players and their success, but really unhappy because, you know, of the tradition. It just you don't do that. It, you mm. celebrate a, a Stanley Cup and a championship. So. It, it, it didn't make sense to me, but, but, but they, they wanted, you know, to do that. So, so good. Um, so w- what was, what specifically do you want to talk about that? Ask, what? ask me your question again. What, uh, yeah. um, just the, uh, excitement level though, around the town though, um, you know, one of the, one of the things is yes, you know, you don't usually have a parade after the second, a second round loss, but on the other hand though, that Sharks team, I think, really put the Sharks on the map in San Jose. That was the first year of the new arena, too. And so it you know, became uh, San Jose's team uh, that year. You know, the prior two years, they were playing in Daly City in, in San Francisco in the Cal Palace. So, um, th- there, so there seemed like there was uh, just reading the stories from back then, that there just was a, a ton of excitement just locally. They, like, did you see that around town? Did more people recognize you once the playoffs started? Things like that. Well, I mean, if you go back, we were all eight and one to start the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm sure the fans looked at that and said, well, the first coach came in or the first two years were bad. So they changed the coach. So now it's supposed to get better. And all it did is get way worse. Because <laughs> 8 one was way worse than the first two years. So I'm sure everybody is like, what is going on? You know, now there was that, the new arena, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the first time San Jose had a, you know, a major sports team. So there was enough adrenaline, fan adrenaline excitement to kind of survive all of that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we, we needed to survive on the ice, too, and not just, you know, not just have it be because it's new uh, that, that it's exciting. Um, but, you know, we kind of, you know, we made some changes, some adjustments. Uh, the Lariana Makarov group of five came on. Um, and so uh, we, we kept getting better. We kept improving. We made little changes. We started winning. And then, you know, we started winning enough that, you know, we realized there's, there's an outside, probably never will happen, but there's an outside chance we could make the playoffs. But we're going to have to win, you know, a lot of games in the second half of the season to make the playoffs. And, um, you know, that – that kind of started happening a little bit. And, you know, one, one thing I'll never, never forget um, is 
there's uh, the movie, uh, the biggest movie, uh, or one of the biggest movies that that had just come out was Dumb and Dumber. Okay. <laughs> um, there's two two interesting parts of that. One, I'm in the credits. Uh, of that oh, movie, if you ever I didn't know that. if you ever watch the movie and stay long enough and look at the the section of the credits where it says party goers, you'll see my name in there. Um, <laughs> the only reason I'm in that is is my college uh, roommate uh, is one of the Farley brothers. Oh sure, yeah, all yeah. kinds of movies. Um, the big hockey fans so too. It, well, they yeah, him and I were both uh, freshman goaltenders at RPI um, oh, okay. the same year, <laughs> and you know, and so we both kind of flunked out of the the college coaching business, but he became, but we both kind of had success in our own way, him in the movies and a little bit of me, I guess, uh, coaching. Um, so, but the the interesting part of the of that winning that put us in the playoffs or as we were winning enough to think maybe we can make the playoffs. There's a line in the movie where George, I think is the character, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he makes this big uh, spiel um, to the girl in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is that Jim so Carrey Jim to Carrey, Lauren Holly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jim Carrey's character is, talking to Holly and, and he fumbles, fumbles the, you know, asking her out, just completely blows the line. And, and she says, you know, is there a chance? And she goes, well, maybe like one in a million. And he takes that as a positive. Uh, and he, he answers back to her. Um, so you're saying there's a chance, right? Yep. And he's yep. all excited yep. about that. If you remember the movie. Yep. And yep. of course, so, when we would win a game down, down the stretch, which was putting us a little closer to the playoffs, uh, we'd win and we'd come in the locker room and everybody would kind of wait till everybody came in. You know, you got the three stars and a, maybe a media interview or something, but we'd wait till 100% of the players were back in the locker room. And then Jamie Baker would get up and go in the middle of the locker room <laughs> and he'd say, so... You're saying there's a chance. And that's how we kind of, that's how we ended every game. And so there was this vibe that was being formed in the room that took on its own momentum. Mm -hmm. And I think we became even, a, because of that, I think we became even a little better than maybe even our, our numbers would have indicated or our talent would have indicated. But, you know, another really interesting story from that, that season is now we actually made the playoffs and it's time to, you know, play Detroit, mm -hmm. right? There's two, there's two pretty, one's funny, one's, one's real. Um, the funny part is uh, about two weeks before the playoffs were going to start, we played Detroit uh, in, in a regular season game. And so they were in San Jose to play us and they stayed at whatever hotel the visiting team stayed at. And uh, after the game was over and they left, uh, maybe the game was on a Saturday or Sunday on Monday, Tommy Peterson, who was, you know, very good right shot D on that, on that team. 
he came in my office and he handed me a group of uh, a packet of about 20, about 20 pieces of paper. He goes, hey, I thought you might find this interesting. And I said, what is it? He goes, well, look through it. And I started looking through it, and it's it's uh, it's Santos, it's Detroit's uh, game plan for us in the playoffs because it was kind of getting to where it was obvious we were going to play him. And so I said to him, like, how did you get this? And he said, well, my girlfriend uh, works the front desk at the hotel where they were staying, and the assistant coaches came down to her and said, can you make me a copy of this? And she went in the back room to the coffee machine and looked at it and being a hockey player's girlfriend and being a smart, smart gal, she made two copies. She gave one back to the assistant coach, gave one to her, to her boyfriend. She gave so, one to the Red Wings assistant coach. So yeah. So, yeah. Red Wings assistant coach had brought it down there. So we had their plan against us. You know, you, you get most of that stuff off video. I can't say it was the game breakers series breaking deal that we had their plan but um but that that's the funny story that the kind of sports interesting story is is uh you know bob erie was our captain um and so as we approached the first playoffs there you know it was my first time coaching a stanley cup playoff and Bob Erie had played with the, you know, the Penguins during their cup years, Mario Lemieux, Ron Francis, et cetera, et cetera. So he had won a couple of cups, mm-hmm. not as a captain, but as a, you know, as a, a role player on the Penguins, but now he was our captain. So I, you know, I, I went to him and I said, listen, a lot of the guys have never played a Stanley cup playoff game. I've never coached one. You know, why don't, why don't you just talk to the team? You know, uh, first day of practice before our, you know, maybe we had four days to get ready for our first game or something. Why, why don't you talk to the team? Just tell me your experiences, you know, tell them what you think, you know, we should be ready for, or prepare for. And so, you know, he kind of looked at me kind of weird. I didn't know if he liked the idea or thought I was, you know, thought I was, you know, just a stupid coach. You know, sometimes <laughs> you don't know what the players are thinking when you're asking them stuff, talking to them, but so he's like, uh, you know, he didn't give me a real enthusiastic yes, but he seemed like he was going to do it. Sure. So the the Monday came, uh, first day of playoff prep, and and uh, and so I said, hey, 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 Bob, why don't you why don't you talk about your your experiences? And he stood up and he goes, um, guys, I'd like to tell you sixteen things that it takes to win a Stanley Cup. And I went. Oh my God, 16. I just wanted, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I'd only asked for like a, 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 maybe a sentence. And he, 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 pre- he prepared a book. And, and then he said, the reason it's 16 is it takes 16 wins to win a Stanley Cup. So I thought of the 16 most important things that uh, were part of the Stanley Cups that I was on, on mm. a team with, the, the Penguins. And, you know, I, I've, I've used those 16 things for every single playoff preparation really? mm-hmm. for every team I've coached, junior, pro, minor, pro, Europe, Korea, Asia, Europe. When we have a playoffs that's starting, you know, we, we, we start with, with Bob Erie's 16 rules for, for winning a championship. Um, yeah, so uh, that was helpful, too, in terms of, I think, our success in the playoffs. What were a couple of those rules? Anything surprising or, you know? No, but um, 
I don't think so. And I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving a 26 foot U-Haul truck as we're talking right now, right across the country. So <laughs> hard to remember. So I've got to run my blinker and weave in and out like Larry off. I feel like Larry off making moves here in the traffic. But, but anyhow, um, you know, uh, will is greater than skill. Mm. Uh, that was one of them. Um, you know, the, the idea of how hard you want it, how much you want it's way more important than how hard you shoot it or how fast you skate. Uh, so will is greater than skill was one of the 16. Um, uh, you know, no peripheral opponents. And that was really just, you got to get organized. You know, the playoffs come and there's family and people want tickets mm-hmm. and and, you know, it, it, that can really chew up your energy and your focus. So, you know, he talked about, and one of the 16 was no peripheral opponents. And that, and that's all that stuff. Like, mm. you know, it, it, of course, you're going to want to take care of your wife, your family, your friends that are coming to town, your parents, your grandparents. They're coming to see you on the road. It's a blast. So we're, we're not going to not help those people, but you got to you got to be extra organized in doing so. Sure. So that it never gets in the way of, of, of the game plan and the focus and the review of the previous game and the preparation for the next game and the pre-scout of your opponent, you got to make sure you're highly organized when you, when you start these playoffs. Um, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're never out of a game. Um, talked about, you know, uh, the other team might take a five minute penalty that you didn't expect and you might score two goals to get, so you're, you're never out. Um, there was, there was so many gems in those, uh, in those 16. And I, I'm sorry that I, you know, that they don't fly right off the top of my Oh, head. it's okay. Yeah. You're not coaching us. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you gotta drive the U-Haul as well. Um, yeah. Moving forward to the um, 1995 playoffs. Uh, one of your boldest decisions was when you were down three to two in the first round against the Calgary flames, uh, you started uh, goaltender Wade Flaherty. I'm saying that right over Archer's Urbe. Uh, fan favorite archers are right uh wade helps you upset calgary in that round what was behind the decision for that you know if if, yeah there's two sides of the goaltending in that series by the way um calgary flipped back and forth with their goaltenders um and and uh so did detroit if you remember a little bit Mm. between osgood and asenza Detroit was flipping back and forth between their goaltenders and uh, Calgary did. And, and I think it's, man, the history in the NHL, that's never worked. Um, if you look at uh, the Minnesota wild this year, tried it with, with Gustafson and, and uh, help me out guys. Uh, oh, flurry. 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 Yeah. Back and forth. And, and so, um, yeah. Uh, if you have two goaltenders, you have no goaltenders kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's really proven true, and, and even up to this year with the Wild, right? Um, so, uh, but those things are those things are are, are difficult because um, you know our our thing the year before, Urbe, uh, you know he, he was probably clearly our MVP. I mean, Larionov and, and Makarov and Norton and those guys and Bobby Reed. They did a lot of good things for our team, but Herbe was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't remember the exact reason why Flaherty 
Um, you know, Irving did have a, a pretty serious hand injury that affected sure, his, his dog career. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember. Obviously, we're talking about something that was, you know, 30 years ago. So yeah. I don't remember the timing, but it might have been the dog bite situation had had hampered his performance during the year mm-hmm. in such a way that that we had just you know made a decision to go with clarity in the in the playoffs but boy talk about excitement and having to go back there and in a game seven and a double overtime and and uh whitney's little tip of the pocket right yeah pretty pretty special stuff and in the next season, 1995-96, you know, the Sharks got off to a slow start and you got let go. Uh, just sort of what happened with that team? What was different about that team? Ah, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I just know that it wasn't working the way it, it had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's it was my first experience as a coach being fired. Um, it was, it was, it was sad. It was traumatic. It was, you know, uh, for myself, um, I, I'm now where, where I can almost, you know, I, I, I've been fired three times in the business now coaching 40 years. Um, and I've gotten where just, as you get older and you, you understand the business and winning and losing and when GMs are under pressure and the way that GM talks to you and his body language to you, I could think, you know, I, I would say that when I first got fired, uh, it was very traumatic. Uh-huh. Uh, it personally affected me for months. Um, and I can tell you now that I, I think I could tell you by the body language and the communication with the GMs I work for, I bet if, if I get in a situation where I'm going to be fired, I can tell you the day it's going to happen. <laughs> and I can tell you that it probably wouldn't bother me more than about 30 seconds now. And that's just what happens over the course of 40 years as you start to understand the nature of the business, the nature of the game, the nature of coaching the nature of how coaches are dealt with by management. You just, you just get, so you just kind of, you, you get where it doesn't bother you as much. It's just part mm. of the game. At first, first you take it like the way, the way you take it is, is uh, you're not any good. You, you, you're not a good coach. You're like you, you, you screwed up. Um, and then eventually, you know, as you've got through it a couple times, you you realize, well, there's things about me as a coach. I definitely got to keep working on. But a lot of times in this business, changes are made that have nothing to do with you. It just is what needed to be done. And they chose you as the change that they were going to institute. So so you, you approach it very differently as you gain experience in the business. So, mm. so. And you, you and, mentioned... And, uh, oh. Yeah, no, you know, it, it's... We're, we're talking about... Don't forget, we're talking about uh, me as a coach... Uh, we're, we're talking about, I think I was 35 years old, right? Sure, I think yeah. Larry Onuf was like 32 or 31. It's just, if, if I could, you know, no one gets a second chance really in life. You don't get to start over. But if I could go back and start over, I wouldn't even want to be in the NHL at that point. Um, mm. Because, I, you know, I, I think if I, if I knew then or at some point know what I know now, having done it 40 years, having uh, experience, having uh, 
the ability to deal with players on a, on, on a level that I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to do when I was 35 years old. I, I wish I would actually become a coach more when I was 45 or 50, not when I was 33, you know, anyhow, mm-hmm. um, go, go on. I'm talking oh. about myself. We gotta talk no, about no. Yeah. Well, uh, no, that's what I want to ask about. Like, did you have trouble maybe, I don't know, relating to players, but you were close in age with them. So what was sort of the, the issue being such a, a young head coach in the NHL and, you know, maybe you weren't able to communicate with players the way that uh, you could now. Oh, hundred percent. You're a hundred percent accurate. Um, so if I were to simplify this, I, I would say that um, when I, when I, let's just divide the 40 years I've coached in the first half, second half for, mm-hmm. for simplification. Um, first half, you know, what, what I was, is, is I was, a I was a, a, a fairly uh, cutting edge, brilliant. I shouldn't say that that sounds, you know, I don't like talking about myself, but I think I was ahead of the game in terms of strategies sure. that teams could employ that would produce winning. Mm-hmm. I think I could teach work and discipline and, and, and team strategies really, really good. And so my coaching was me in my coach's office, step out into the locker room, tell the team how they should play step back into my coach's office, go behind the bench when they played. If they didn't do it the way I wanted, yell at them for not doing it the way <laughs> I wanted them to go back to my coach's office. And so there was, there was very little uh, personal interaction in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now if you go to the second half, uh, I, I would say that, you know, what I've learned is, is that there's 25 players, 25 different personalities. All of those players have a, an individual motivation within that team plan. And all of those players want to be seen, felt, heard, appreciated, supported. Um, and they want a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my ability to build relationships with people uh, and players is, out of necessity is a hundred times better than it was when mm. I was a 35 year old San Jose Sharks coach. Sure. I just wasn't, I, I wasn't smart enough to appreciate or understand how important building relationships was. So now I don't, you know, before I only coached in front of the team, I still coach in front of the team, but you know, now I also talk to each player as much as I can. So I coach in the hallway. I coach, Mm. You know, privately in my office, I, I don't just coach in a group setting. I try to, I try to do it differently now. So, Oh, that speaks to sort of the uh, change or adjustment in coaching over the last three or four decades too. If you want to compare like, you know, uh, uh, Mike Keenan, you know, 40 years ago to uh, John Cooper, more, you know, cerebral, maybe more of a uh, uh you know, you have to spend more time with your players and have that one-on-one uh, relationship and communication. But I did want to ask you about uh, one relationship with the San Jose Sharks, uh, with a, a, a very uh, noteworthy player there that didn't quite work out uh, with uh, Pat Falloon. Pat Falloon, of course, was the Sharks' very first uh, first-round pick, the number two pick of the 91 draft after Eric Lindros. And a lot, obviously, was, was expected that Pat being drafted that high by a new team and things didn't quite work out for 
for Pat over his career, like what had been expected in 1991. And, um, Pat um, was uh, traded at kind of the around the same time that you were let go by the Sharks. And just what you know, what didn't work uh, with 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 a uh, Pat in the NHL? Well, yeah, good question because um, you know that same year Whitney was drafted, but more like mm. in the fourth or sixth round. Yeah, second round uh, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, so both were kind of similar players right not sure. not big uh, uh i think uh pat balloon would have been more of a pure goal scorer than whitney uh i think whitney had a little bit more of a playmaking ability sure. than, than pat both same size both you know canadian junior players uh western hockey league guys similar background similar age one had a long career and one didn't mm-hmm. um and so uh, why does that happen? I, I don't know for sure. Um, what, what makes one situation work and, and one not? Um, I, I think, you know, Ray just found a way to survive the business, mm. um, to, to make adjustments, to find his niche, to, to see what needed to get done. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe Pat didn't make the adjustments that needed to be be done you know it, it's I think sometimes if you, if you went to the players now I think you'd find some similar answers to what I just said about myself as a coach like mm. um, I, I think if, you, if if guys could go back and go man if I had just applied what I learned or if I had another chance man I would I would do some of the things I learned I just I figured it out too late you know I was I, I didn't figure it out in time uh, and, and so that happens to both coaches and players. And, and I, I don't know the specifics. I know Pat went on to the flyers and, and, and didn't last a, a real long time, mm. time there e- either. Um, but, you know, I, I would also flip it to, to, to the Ray Whitney story, which to me is a tremendous hockey story. Sure. Because, absolutely. You know, Ray is not that big. He's pretty small and he wasn't that fast. And so if you ever, you know, talked about, well, if you're small and slow, you're never going to make it in this business. Um, but he did, and he survived a long, long time. Um, and so hats off to, to the job he did to, to, make, a, to make a pretty good uh, career out of, out of, you know, the challenges he faced uh, with his limited size and, and speed, and he yet ultra successful. Mm. And speaking of Ray, since you bring him up, um, uh, he left the Sharks though at year a year after you left the Sharks. But do you have any sense of why the organization maybe you know didn't uh, didn't write it out with Ray Whitney? Because obviously after he left the Sharks, I mean he was in NHL for 15 more years after that. And obviously you know if you look back, you know the that that's a mistake in franchise history, letting Ray Whitney go. You drafted him and um, you, you let him, you let him walk. So just what was the organizational perspective of Ray in, in those, uh, you know, before you got let go? Yeah. You know, I, I can't give you an answer to that. Hmm. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's taken me 40 years of, of trial and error and a lot of mistakes and a lot of studying 
and a lot of watching other coaches and talking to other coaches and, and trying to be a lifetime learner, which I, I really try to do. Uh, and I don't think I would have survived in this ever-changing psychology that, you know, our, our young men come up through sports with now uh, in this somewhat entitled age or different age or, you know, social media. Whatever you want to say, the players are different now than they were 40 years ago. So you're, ever, you're trying to adapt. I think it's why Scotty Bowman lasted forever because he was uh, had the ability to adapt to generation sure. after generation. And so my answer to your question is I've spent so much focus on coaching uh, and know how hard it is to figure out how to do things right in coaching that I never really was really part of a lot of those discussions of who we drafting, mm. who we trading, you know, um, uh, who should we keep? Uh, it really was the general manager's office along with his support staff making those decisions. And I would be, you know, knowing how hard it has been to learn how to coach, I'd really be on a line if I tried to second guess, you know, management's decision, because mm. I'm sure those decisions are just as hard to learn how to do right as would coaching decisions be. And it would take, I think, a long time to learn how to get those right. And so, you know, the only thing I would say maybe is, you know, I was, I was a young, inexperienced coach that had some success and also failed and got fired by the Sharks. And no, I'm a way better coach now than I was 20 years ago. And I've learned from a lot of things I didn't do right. But the Sharks staff was young too, right? Sure. Um, and so, you know, you know, Dean, who was, became the general manager while I was still there, I mean, young general manager, maybe those were mistakes of a young general manager. I don't know. He went on and when he gained experience, helped the Los Angeles, you know, Kings win Stanley Cups. Yeah. So he figured it out. He figured it out. Obviously, he knows what he's doing, but, but maybe those were youth, youthful management mistakes. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer for you. Because I wasn't privy to any of those conversations. Okay, fair enough. Uh, uh, moving uh, forward uh, in your career, uh, the, the last uh, NHL job you held actually was coaching the New Jersey Devils in 2002. Uh, for the last 20 years, 21 years, uh, you continued to coach, but outside the NHL. Have you ever you know, thought about going back to the NHL, or is it sort of like you, you like coaching outside of it? Yeah, I, 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 I tried for a while. I just I just think that thing went cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it'd make a good television cold case file. <laughs> um, yeah, it just went cold. I, it kind of lost connections with the people that I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I, 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 at some point, I think everybody, anybody would want to be in the NHL player or coach. It's the highest level of hockey in the world. So I can't say that I wouldn't want to be there or wouldn't enjoy going back there or don't even now think about that as a possibility. But when it hasn't happened for 20 years, you know, you're not, you're not holding your breath. Sure. Um, and, and so in the meantime, what I can tell you is I absolutely love coaching. Uh, I, I, I just, 
I'm so lucky. I, even though I'm not in the NHL the last 21 years, I consider myself one of the luckiest people walking the face of the earth because I get to do what I love. And, and in addition to that, I've been able to see cultures in South Korea, Poland, yeah. uh, Hungary, Switzerland, France. I've gotten to see the world. So uh, how many people, you know, it, it's like when I, when I kind of ran out of North American jobs and I, I looked at a job in France and I mm-hmm. called, you know, colleagues and friends and, and all the hockey people said, don't do it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not that good a league. You're going to disappear from the North American scene. You're never going to get back here and coach. Um, just not a good enough league. You're not going to get paid very much money. Don't, don't do it. So it was five and oh, don't do it. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I called five non-hockey people. And I asked them, what, what do you think of <laughs> something like that? Yeah. And all five of them said, well, so you can coach hockey, right? I go, yeah. And you can live in France. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, nobody gets chances like that. Now, you know, I thought about it. Uh, it, it it's, it's the same thing. I got asked to coach the hung- Hungary's national team, which I did this year in the World Championships in, yeah. in Finland, right? Um, you know, when I was first asked, uh, you know, I wanted to just be thorough, thinking about whether I should do it or not. And so I always like to ask other people's opinion. Ultimately, you got to make your own decisions in life, but nothing, nothing wrong with seeking counsel. So I, I ask people, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the basic thing back that people said was, how many people get to coach a team in the world championships in their lifetime? Uh it, it, forget who the team is how many people get to coach in the world championships and they're like the answer is like uh, like nobody like hardly any like you know 0.5 percent of all the hockey coaches in the world ever get that opportunity i knew hungry they're the lowest seed going in the tournament i knew our chances were slim um but when i thought about it i thought man that would really be disrespectful to take an opportunity that a million people would die to have and just say ah no it's not maybe the team that's going to win it all. So I don't want to do it. So, so I, I just see all of my life as a, as a, you know, uh, a guy from a small little 5,000 town in Northern Minnesota, where you fish and hunt and, you know, try to stay warm in the winter and you get to do all these things. And how, how could you ever not think that you're, you know, fortunate in all those opportunities. So I, I feel mm. lucky. Right. Right. And like you mentioned, uh, you've coached in, France, Switzerland, Poland, Hungary, and Asia. The one that stands out to me is the three years you spent coaching in Korea um, in the in the Asia League, and that's you know that's just not a place where you think of a lot of ice hockey going on. And in that league, you had to travel from Korea to Japan to play games. But can you just talk about that experience? And you also you had a couple of NHLers on your team, former NHLers, and Alexander Froloff and uh, Matt Murley. So just talk about that experience in general. Yeah, you know, I, I went to uh, South Korea to coach. Uh, you know, hockey is small world. It's unbelievable. Uh, the trainer of the, you know, the medical staff of the New Jersey Devils, his uh, father was in the military in South Korea. Mother is Korean, so he's half Korean. And he, at the end of his career, after finishing with the Devils, went over there and was the trainer of a hockey team over there. And that's the connection in me being hired to coach the team. So, um, but it was coming right off the Olympics, which were hosted by Korea Mm -hmm. 2000 and 
and uh, I'm going to forget, maybe 2018. 2018, yeah, thank you. Uh, so they had just, you know, hosted the Olympics. They had trained for two or three years. They had brought in a number of Canadian players as and granted them citizenship to, to give their team a fighting chance in the Olympics. And so, um, you know, so hockey was, was on a bit of an upswing in interest. Uh, hockey in Japan has a history for a hundred years. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Hockey, you know, and hockey in Korea is about a 30 year old uh, process. And the two of them joined to form the Asia league, the two countries. And it was, a uh, and it, it was a, a really, really, really fun experience. Um, you know, uh, if, for example, the, 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 there's two things about Korean culture. One is uh, age is like, it's just a culture where you honor older people, right? Sure. And I'm getting old. And so, you know, being the oldest person in the organization, it was kind of mandatory whether you like me or not, you had to show me respect, right? So, so how could I not like that feature of their culture? Um, <laughs> the other, the other thing is, uh, uh, is that you know, uh, in Korean culture, when you say thank you, you you bow and say thank you at the same time to whoever you're thanking, and uh, one hundred percent of the practices, when the practice ended. And the guys had, you know, done a few little extra fun things that they like to do after. And you're just hanging out by the sideboards where the players exit the, the ice surface to walk back to their locker room. 100% of the practices for three straight years, every player, 100%, bowed and thanked me for the practice. <laughs> and, if, if you know, I can just tell you a North American practice that, you know, when you're finished the practice, especially maybe if the team didn't play well the night before, or the guys, you know, weren't really as good in practice as you wanted them to be. And, and you had raised the level of your coaching intensity to try to draw that out of them. There was a lot of players, you know, leaving the ice saying a lot of things besides thank you as they walked <laughs> by a, in, a, in a North American practice. So it, it was just like, you know, even even if I had been very intense during the practice, it was just so fun to have a player always hundred percent say thank you when it was when it was when it was all done. Um, I can't imagine Yarmir Yager uh, uh, bowing to you and thanking you after uh, Penguins practice. No, no, no. But can you believe the guy still plays at fifty-two? Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm still great actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's unbelievable. I mean I could tell you another guy between Link Gates and Yarmer Yager stories. Mm. You could have a a, a ten-week podcast, and I could keep it <laughs> full of full of uh, material in terms of stories. Uh, you know, me with Yager, uh, there's hundreds of stories there, but. The one thing I will tell you, and you know, some of the stories were, were tough because he wasn't a great team guy, mm. but he was a phenomenal, probably the, the, the most phenomenal athlete I ever coached of all the hockey players I coached. Um, the things he could do on an individual basis were so spectacular. Uh, he was so gifted, so talented. Um, and you know he, he he's still doing it at age 51. That's he's just a, a freak, a positive freak, but a, a freak in terms of how, how great an athlete he is. 
Uh, did that experience in San Jose of letting the Larian offline kind of go do their own thing? Did, did you carry that over with, with Yager and sort of let, you know, Yaramir be himself? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It helped, but you know, Yarmer, Yarmer was extreme. Um, you know, like when I got hired there, they, they asked me all summer, are you going to make Yager wear a, a helmet for practice? You know? And, and I said, of, of, of course, we're going to, we're going to practice really close to all we play. We want to practice hard. The games are easy. So everybody wears full equipment, but they asked me like 10 times before the, you know, so then you're like, why are they asking me this, this many times? <laughs> so the first day of practice with the penguins, you know, I, and, and, and by the way, in those days, probably still true, but you had to, whatever team rules you had and the fines that would accompany breaking a team rule, you had to get the, the players to, sign off on those they had a union rep and the, and the union oh. had to kind of okay those rules you couldn't mm -hmm. just make up your own rules with some ridiculous fine the, sure. the union had a right to look at your rules so i told the the penguin team before that first practice listen here's our rules i handed them out wearing full equipment was part of it um and i said let's make sure you guys get this checked off on but these are our team rules i gave them out right away and i said make sure your union rep you know, gets these okay. Anyhow, so we go out now for the first practice, right? So I'm going out. It's I'm I'm kind of nervous. It's my second time in the NHL. Mm -hmm. You know, I I'd been with San Jose, but it it at the end I got fired. It didn't work at the end. So now you get a second chance. You want to do it right. You think you've learned a few things from your first experience. But, you know, maybe correct a couple mistakes you had made. Uh, and so here you go. It's your first day again. So I'm out there skating around, you know, five minutes before the actual practice is going to start. All the players are out there. Everybody's kind of doing laps like you see at every hockey practice you ever go to. And, and, and Yarmer, who notoriously came out with like two seconds before the buzzer to start practice, you know, wasn't out there yet. And all I can think of is, you know, is he going to have his helmet on or not? <laughs> and, and uh, out he comes, no helmet comes out, starts skating around. So now I got to make a decision, you know, uh, do I kick him off and make him put his helmet on? I just told everybody we got to wear full gear. I handed out the team rules or, you know, you're thinking, and you got a kind of a guy on each shoulder talking in your ear, angel and the devil talking to you. Sure. you know? One guy's going, ah, you know, you were kind of a hard ass in San Jose. It might be why he got fired. Just, mellow out a little bit. Don't worry about it today. Handle it off the ice. Do it quietly. Do it privately. Don't make a big scene. You know, and, and you got the other guy in the other ear going, hey, it's your team. You got to establish your rules day one. You can sure. back off later, but you know, this is this is your time to set your culture, set your, you know, you got to do it right from the, from the very get-go if you're going to have a good culture. And so it, it literally took me like, like four or five laps to kind of get the answer in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and so and i'm sure all the players all the other players were just looking like what's going to happen first confrontation between yager and the new coach so i'm sure it was pure entertainment for everybody else on the ice so so finally i decided i'm, I'm gonna go i'm gonna i'm gonna do it i'm gonna i'm gonna make him put his helmet on so so now I, I decided i'm gonna go talk to him right so i started skating towards him 
But like a good player, he's, you know, you can see the whole ice with a good shoulder check. He, he, <laughs> he saw me coming. <laughs> so he just, he just picked up the pace. So I, I swear to God, it took me about, and I'm an ex-goalie. I can't even skate. He's the best player in the history of the game, almost. And I, could, I couldn't catch him. He just kept picking up speed. So I'm chasing him around the rink. Laps, like four or five laps. Finally, I had to like cut diagonally and cut him off. Uh, other players were just howling, laughing. Uh, anyhow, I, so I did, you know, I said, hey, I already told you, you got to wear all your gear. And he, and he said, coach. And I said, yeah, what? He goes, I don't got to follow your rules. Uh, he goes, the, the, un the union hasn't approved your rules. I don't got to follow any of your rules yet. So that, that was his opening comment to me. I go, well, yeah, all right. You're right. You don't have to. And, you know, I said, but, you know, in two days when they pass the rules, you're going to have to wear it. And he's like, I'll go put it on. So he, he did go back in the locker room and put it on. So. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I'll tell you one more, one more Yager story. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I, I'm, 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 I think it's my second year there. Um, Yager had signed a, I think a six year contract. So he's, he's, he's into two years of it and he, he didn't like it. So he wanted to redo it. Um, so all year long, he's in this contract renegotiation. Um, and it's in the papers every day and mm -hmm. it's a bit of a distraction, but uh, you know, I, I have nothing to do with any of that stuff. So I, I don't, I, I don't really kind of pay attention. You know, my dad would say, you shake your hand, that's your deal. You know, sign your name on a paper. That's the deal. So I didn't even, you know, I didn't even understand it kind of from my upbringing. It didn't, you know, it's renegotiation, but it's sports, right? So whatever. So one day we're in New Jersey and Rick Keogh is one of my assistants. He's running the power play and he's having a pregame power play meeting. And I'm in the back standing against the wall. And Yager comes in at like the last second and he stands against the wall with me. He rarely would go like sit with the other players because, you know, it just wasn't cool to be the same as the other guys. He always had to be different in his own unique, weird way, whatever. It's Yarmer. Um, so he stands at the back against the wall. And the meeting starts, and he kind of whispers to me, Coach. And I'm like, yeah, Yarmer. He goes, we have too many meetings. And I just instantly looked up at him. Don't know how I thought of it so quick, but just instantly I said, Yarmer. He goes, yeah, Coach. I go, you're in contract renegotiations, right? He goes, yeah. I go, just put it in there. You don't got to come to any of our meetings. And I was kind of joking, but I was, just, I was just messing with him, right? And he got this gigantic smile on his face. And he, he had a huge smile. And he got the biggest smile I've ever seen. And he looked right at me. He got, now he's not even paying any attention to the power play meeting that's going on in the, you know, at the front of the room. And he looked me right in the eyes from about six inches away. He goes, Coach, that's your best idea ever. He said, I'll take, I'll take a million less a year if I don't have to be in your meetings. <laughs> this is a good strategy. Said, You're going to get in with management, though. Yeah. yeah. So I said, all right, there you go, Yarmer. Fair enough. Pay attention now. we got a meeting going on. Did, did he put that into his next, next contract? <laughs> yeah. 
and, and then he said, he said, oh, oh, and by the way, coach, my dad gets to be your assistant coach. <laughs> and, and I don't know where that came from, but I didn't even, you know, by then I wanted to, I wanted to pay attention to the beating myself. So I was sure. ignoring it by then. So anyway, I don't know where that came from. Okay. Okay. But it's still, I want like his next contract, was there any kind of clause in terms of he, he didn't have to attend as many meetings or. Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Think so. <laughs> okay. That would have been unprecedented uh, probably. No, I think when he went home, he went. He, I'm sure he told himself that was dumb. I ain't giving up a million dollars. So, <laughs> I guess back, uh, kind of wrapping up. We've gone through the a lot of your your um, coaching experience and everything. Um, back to the present day. Yeah, you're going to be coming becoming the head coach of the Wenatchee Wild. Um, can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to take that job, and a little bit about um, the change that the organization is going through right now. Yeah, I mean the job, the, the the you know the the reason for the job was primarily my family. I, I I've coached in South Korea, Poland, and Hungary for the last six years, and my wife has stayed behind to raise our son, who's now 18 years old and graduated high school. So she stayed back to give his life some stability. And I just felt the priority needed to be my wife, really, my mm. family. Um, so having a job back in the U.S. puts us together. She's, you know, she's uh, in a car right behind me right now, I'm sure, screaming and chewing my ass out without me being in the car every time I, you know, change lanes and pass someone. <laughs> I'm a fast driver and she's a slow driver. So, um, but yeah, here we go. The reason is the 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 girl in the car behind me is why I decided to coach back in North America. You know, there, there was some security. It was a four-year contract and, and, uh, and I, I enjoyed coaching in that league. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I've heard great things about the people in charge of the, the program, Bliss Littler. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I like that age group. I find that, that, that 17 to 21 year old, uh, People, they make you young all over again. Um, and so I find that group fun to work with. Uh, so, yeah, so th those were those were some of the reasons behind it. Have you been able to meet with any of the players yet? Or is this kind of a you're, you're moving there now kind of thing? You know, I've talked to the three. Uh, they have three first round draft picks on the team, and I've talked to all three of those guys. Um, gotcha. And then, and then, you know, just the move itself and finding a rental home and packing stuff and going across the country. And I, I got busy. So all the other conversations are going to have to be in person when, when the players arrive at camp. I mean, the, the team is the old Winnipeg uh, Ice franchise that moved uh, from, from Cranbrook to Winnipeg, tried to survive in Winnipeg for a few years, couldn't make it go financially and got sold to the ownership group in, in Wenatchee and is now back back there. Uh, you know, they had a really old team last year. They kind of kind of made a lot of trades and brought in a lot of older players to make a run for the Memorial Cup. They were close. They lost to Seattle or they'd have gone to the Memorial Cup. They've got remnants of that team left. As I mentioned, they have, you know, three first-round draft picks, so there is some talent on that team. A couple other kids have been drafted, and, I think nine of the players are going to go to NHL camps, some rookie camps, some regular camps. So, so uh, there'll be, I think, a chance for the team to be decent this year. 
after that, because of all the draft picks that were given up to try to, you know, make last year's team a championship team, there could be a bit of a rebuild going on uh, a couple years after that. But, um, you know, I, I went to uh, Everett when I first went to the WHL back in 2003. Uh, I went there and they were they were a expansion team at the time. And I, you know, I, I showed up with the San Jose Sharks in year three. And uh, so it's kind of right up my alley in a way. Um, I, I don't mind those challenges. I actually enjoy kind of being around teams that people have low expectations for. And kind of, uh, I, I really enjoy having a, a team, kind of a light bulb go off with a team that didn't believe in itself. And then the light bulb goes off and the team, you can see collective, they're like, no, I think we're pretty good. Like we got a chance here. I like that. I like that, that process of watching that happen. Um, so yeah, so those are some of my thoughts headed into my new job. Yeah. You've got, um, actually a San Jose draft pick as well there and, uh, Mason Bopit, the goaltender. Yeah, I guess it depends. Some, some of the older players kind of depends on what the, uh, NHL teams do with the guys. True. Um, you know, they, they, if, if the player's an overage player and they want to put them in the AHL, then they can. But if the player's not of a certain age, they can't put them in the AHL. They got to send them back to their, their respective junior teams. Um, so we're, we're going to really be dependent on the decisions of NHL teams first uh, yep. in terms of uh, what, our, what our team will look like. And so there, there'll be, you know, a month of patience as guys kind of come to our camp, get themselves a little bit ready for the NHL camp, disappear to the NHL camp, and then it's a waiting game seeing which of those players will be sent back to us. Yeah, we've got one of my favorites from the last draft, Zach Benson. I think it's going to be playing for you. He's one of my... Like just as a, a person who watches prospects a lot, just one of my favorites. I think he's going to yeah, be great. It, yeah, there. Like I said, there is there is some some talent. You know, Connor Geeky and Zach Benson and Matt Savoy all all, all were first round picks, and yep. and uh, so I'm I'm excited to kind of see what those guys have to offer. Really excited to kind of. I, I like being part of like kind of, you know, starting, starting new. Um, mm. And so this, this whole idea of watching this group of guys kind of establish the culture for the future of Wenatchee. Uh, I'm excited to kind of see how that develops. Yeah. Kind of full circle from your early days in the, in the shark system and, you know, starting off in a yes, new franchise, newish franchise. Absolutely. I think that's all the questions that I had, Shank. Did you have anything else? I know we've no. been talking for about an yeah, hour. Yeah, we've been talking for a while. So, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you so much uh, for your time, Kevin. Yeah, thank you guys for breaking up this. You know, it's I, I've already seen the one tree you see in North Dakota. So, that's it for trees <laughs> in North Dakota. So, so, thanks for breaking up my trip a little bit here. Yeah, hopefully it wasn't uh, too dangerous with the U-Haul and, the, and having to talk and everything. Yeah, no, I think North Dakota, Montana, it's the perfect True. spot, right? You don't see a whole lot of – if we'd have done it yesterday in downtown Chicago, I'd have been in trouble. So. <laughs> you timed that really well, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Thank Kevin, so uh, have time, a safe Kevin. drive, yeah, uh, rest of the way, okay. and good luck in Wenatchee. And uh, let's uh, catch up uh, in season so you can tell us more about uh, Mason or, or whoever else is, you know, whatever is going on with the Wild. Yep, sounds good. Thanks for right. thanks for the chat guys.